I'm pleased to be able to reveal the name of the man who has won the Oscar for Best Performance by an Actor. You will please note that this is not an award for the Best Actor, but for the Best Performance by an Actor. This year's nominees are Art Carney for Harry and Tonto, Albert Finney for Murder on the Orient Express, Dustin Hoffman for Lenny, Jack Nicholson for Chinatown, Al Pacino for The Godfather Part Two, and the winner is... Hello there, all you cougars and pintos, and welcome to Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. Still, the only podcast that writes the wrongs, celebrates the blah, 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 blah. There's no time for lengthy intros today. This is the first in our season two series of quickies called Poly Academy. <laughs> Poly Academy. Poly Academy. Like Poly Sci, but Poly Academy. But also Police Academy. What the hell does that mean, you might ask? <laughs> well, let me explain, or perhaps better yet, Spro, who wrote that, uh, <laughs> my succinct friend and sexified co-host. I don't think, did I write sexified? Did no, you, you did. I did I not. Did. <laughs> okay. I don't I even must, know what sexified means. <laughs> I must have been under the influence when... All right. Would you tell the listeners what we intend to do with this season's quickie series? Well, I think like all things, the plan is to evolve. When we started this podcast, we were two people, me, a lover of Academy Awards, and... And you, a person who likes to learn as much as you can about the movies that you love. Both of us, cinephiles, and yet, I think learning more and more, we have barely put a dent in the bottle of what Hollywood has produced and definitely... I feel, learn something new with every episode. And not all of it makes you want to fold over and kiss the red carpet. There's a lot of wrongs to fix, and most egregious are the awards the Academy gave out in a political nature, and not necessarily to the best anything that year. Last year, we focused on the Academy giving, and not taking back, Oscars to three men who the industry knew were sexual assaulters. And while we would not let our audience go a season without hearing the wonderful Emily, the three quickie episodes this season will focus on a chain of events where the Academy shot themselves in the left foot, then the right. All because of a mistake, which we are going to talk about today, that started in 1974 of giving the Best Actor Award based on liking the actor instead of the actor turning in the greatest performance of the year and all time. Shall we? Uh, Yeah, let's shall. (laughs) Just last season, we did conceive of the quickies so-named quickies as briefer versions of the podcast. And I don't think we really lived up to that. Do we rename them this season? I mean, you kind of did with, what is it? Poly Academy? Well, I still think it's going to be a quickie. It's the shortest episode, so it's not like a total lie. The shortest Academy Awards show still ran long. And so I think shall our unquote unquote quickies. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. But can we still have an Oscar fun fact with Spro brought to you by Odd Dog Coffee? For some of us, coffee is more than just a pick-me-up. For some of us, coffee is as important as who should have won Best Actor of 1993. We here at Spro and Lee Take on the Academy take our coffee seriously. We are passionate, eccentric, and a little odd. And for us, there's Odd Dog. Odd Dog Coffee is a specialty roaster based out of Cleveland, Ohio. They offer committed coffee drinkers a reimagined version of flavored coffee. They promise a high-quality roast profile to create a solid bean, and when they flavor their beans, they don't spray them down with cheap, stale chemicals. No, 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 no. No, they use fresh ingredients like cacao nibs, cayenne pepper, and cinnamon stick. What you experience is a balanced bean combined with a touch of spice to create a uniquely delicious cup of coffee you can drink every day. 
Head over to odddogcoffee.com where you can choose from four original roasts, cardamom and clove, just the beans, cinnamon and cayenne cacao, or my personal favorite, reishi shroom and L-theanine. Place your order now and get free shipping on orders over $40. Like film nerds, Odd Dog is at home with its dedication, comfortable in its uniqueness, cozily familiar, yet distinctly odd. The movies you watch are too special to be normal, and the coffee you drink is too precious to be anything but Odd Dog. Oscar fun fact. There were four hosts this year. We're talking about 1975. There were four hosts. Four. At a time when we are eliminating hosts, it was fun to see that they had four. And they were Shirley MacLaine, Bob Hope, of course, Sammy Davis Jr., and Frank Sinatra. My God, side question. (laughs) Not to get off track already, but you know who I would like to see host if they had a team behind them like this? Robert Downey Jr. I'm going to be clear with my belief that the Academy Awards needs to grow some balls, whether they be testicles or ovaries, and put their chins in the air and say, we're the coolest, watch us. I didn't mind the ceremony of 2020 when the presenters were kind of like hosts, like it was like a a party, you know, a a Hollywood party and you were invited and everybody was going to talk to you. But 2021 was horrendous. I mean, honestly, one of the worst awards, I think, ever. And we never got into it, but there's a hint (laughs) of what I thought. Regardless, the fun fact is, we all remember when Warren Beatty and Faye Dunaway flubbed and read the wrong card for La La Land, winning Best Picture over Moonlight. But one of the hosts this year in 1975 was a victim to it as well. In 1964, 10 years before hosting this year, Sammy Davis Jr. was presenting the Oscar for Best Adapted Music Score. I have the sound clip here. I'm going to play it for you. Have you heard this? Have you watched this clip? I have not. All right. So this will be your first time. So let's give it a listen. The other voice you'll hear is a young Jack Lemmon. And this is the 1964 Oscars. There's one fellow in this town who continually makes making it the hard way seem easy. He, He suffers from an old theatrical disease that's very rare called total talent. Mr. Sammy Davis Jr. Thank you very much. Uh, I would like at this time to present the scoring award, and I... Uh, what? Uh, we've already had a Jimmy Stewart impression. <laughs> <laughs> Who did it? Jimmy Stewart. Well, I never really thought he did it too well anyway. <laughs> but in that case... All right, two marks here. Now listen to me, understand? I want to have you know something right now. I'm going to present this award. Please. What? What? Edward G. comes out next. Well, ladies and gentlemen, I would like to sincerely say that it's really one of the great thrills. On this network? (laughs) I don't get that joke. Was he persona non grata at that point? I don't know. The nominees for the best music score adaptation or treatment are John Green for Bye Bye Birdie, Andre Previn for Irma LaDuce, Lee Stevens for A New Kind of Love, Maurice Girard for Sundays and Sibelle, and George Brune for The Sword in the Stone. And the winner is... John Addison for Tom Jones. 
times, I, they gave me the wrong envelope. Wait till the NAACP hears about this. <laughs> mistake this time, baby. <laughs> the winner is Andre Previn for Irma LaDuce. It goes on because what he did was, I guess at this time, there's two awards for best music score. There's, it's like adapted and original. And so what he read was the next award he was going to give out. So after this, he has to go back out, read the nominations for original, which ends with Tom Jones. And he goes, and I guess we all know who won this one. (laughs) So then the guy came up and accepted for that. But he's so expressive with his face. So if you have the time and inclination, watch the clip. It's on YouTube. and he says, I ain't gonna make no mistake this time, baby. He was retrieving his glasses from his pocket. I burst out laughing at the NAACP line, not only because it's funny, but this is 1964. Davis just won a Tony for his performance in Golden Boy, which might have contained the first interracial kiss on Broadway. To say racial tensions were at a high in the 60s is an understatement, and here's Sammy Davis Jr. holding a weight none of us will ever know on the biggest stage in town, and in an instant, he cut the tension with a witty knife. Man, that was a moment. Totally. Good find. It's funny, too, that you had to go back to 1964 because I, I sometimes try to do some pre-research to see if I can figure out what your your fun fact's going to be. And there's <laughs> really nothing of any note about the 1975 Oscars that I could find anyway. Do you want to start with talking about Harry and Tonto? Yeah, let's. I mean, there's no getting around it. This is the okay. worst thing that I watched this for this episode. Well, okay. So I don't think we, I don't think we, maybe we didn't make it clear, but it, the, the year is 1974. Um, the Oscar for best actor was given out in the early months of 1975 to a man named Art Carney. In- for a film named Harry and Tonto, directed by Paul Mazursky. So, Can we just take a moment and let our audience really dive deep in their brain buckets and think, have they ever heard the name Art Carney or the film title Harry and Tonto before? <laughs> I think the answer to both of those questions is going to depend on the age of that person and or their interest in film or television. But we'll get to who, Dar- who Art Carney is, was. But this was a movie I really wanted to like. I kind of imagined it as one of those American classics that I'd somehow missed out. Thank you, Glenda. Ladies and gentlemen, and members of the Academy, what other words besides thank you Paul Mazursky and Josh Greenfeld for a gem of a script? And particularly from my wife, Barbara, and my agent, manager, father, confessor, William Francis Xavier McCaffrey for 25 years, who said two words to me, do it. You are old. The widower and his kitty hit the road, you know? Maybe it'll be uh, like a precursor to Up, was my thought. Oh, yeah, I, I too got Up vibes. I got Up vibes. I, I mean, I even was sitting there thinking, like, before I turned the movie on, like, I might have to talk Spro out of taking this Oscar away. No. <laughs> it was fucking boring. <laughs> It meandered, 
you know, and unlike some scripts, it didn't even try to make the meandering purposeful or interesting. There's really no profound ending. Whatever you imagine happens at the end of a movie where one of the titular characters is a cat. You're probably right. But let's talk. Let's talk Art Carney. We're not here to talk the mo- about the movie. We're here to talk about the man. And though he made quite a career acting on stage, he's probably best known for playing Ed Norton on television's The Honeymooners. But other than parodies like the Flintstones or the brief scene in Back to the Future, I haven't seen an episode of The Honeymooners. Have you? No, no. In fact, to let the audience peek behind the curtain, even after we slated this episode, I think I called you and was like, I mean, as a cinephile, should I know who Art Carney is? Well, when I turned it on, my parents were visiting. And um, I mean, right away, they were like, Honeymooners, Honeymooners. I was like, oh, okay. And apparently he won five Emmys for playing Ed Norton, both on the, the Jackie Gleason show and on the Honeymooners, where I guess these characters both populated those shows. But Carney's character was the inspiration for Barney Rubble and the Flintstones, the inspiration behind Yogi Bear in terms of design, clothing, and mannerisms. And Ed Norton, the character, was ranked by TV Guide 20th on its list of the 50 greatest TV characters of all time. I gotta say, if it wasn't for parodies like the Flintstones or the snippet shown in Back to the Future, I would have only heard about the Honeymooners. When we were growing up, the next generation behind our parents' generation are the ones that really started with television and television shows. And so our reruns really made sense with because I know the Honeymooners was still in syndication um, when I was growing up. But the kids today, or teenagers, or young adults today who's had two generations removed from the Honeymooners, other than maybe Nick at Night, which I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. I think it's I its own know. channel, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Like, so I wonder if like the Honeymooners is like, I wonder how somebody would actually watch the Honeymooners because I don't, I don't think it's on Hulu. I don't think it's on Netflix. Like, well, I, we watched the shit out of Nick at Night in my house, and I remember my three sons, Mister Ed, Donna Reed. I do not ever remember an episode of the honeymooners not to say that it wasn't on but it's weird to think how young tv is as a medium but there's going to be there's already things getting lost in it it's true all right well anyway throughout his career carney tried getting film roles uh with very little success but it wasn't until after james cagney Lawrence olivier and cary grant all turned down the role of harry coombs that Carney earned his first leading role in a film, and it was this one. First, he gave you Bob and Carol and Ted and Alice. And then, Bloom in Love. And now, a new film from Paul Mazursky, Harry and Tonto. Most people think that being old is nothing but sitting around in the park feeding pigeons. That's because they haven't met Harry Coombs. He's 72, and believe it or not, he's got a lot in common with you. You dumb son of a... He has girl troubles. When did you last sleep with a woman? Saturday night, March 1951. He's got family problems. My brother is insane. I don't like that bird. He's getting hassled by the law. Rage, blow, but Harry still has hopes and dreams. Now, when I was your age, I did a lot of foolish things. Then again, I still do a lot of foolish things. So he's packing up his faithful sidekick, Tonto, and running away from home. Uh, my cat has to relieve himself. You're not supposed to have any animals on a vehicle. I need something to get me to Chicago. 20th Century Fox invites you 
to hit the road with Harry and Tonto. He ends up winning Best Actor at the Oscars and Best Actor for Musical or Comedy at the Golden Globes. The notoriety from Harry and Tonto enabled him to work more, but the rest of his career is spotty. He was in a, um, a film called The Late Show. He was in Stephen King's Firestarter and a movie called Going in Style. And these are really his only post-Oscar highlights, unless, of course, you count his role in the Star Wars holiday special, where he played traitor Son Don, a member of the Rebel Alliance who helps Chewbacca and his family evade an imperial blockade. What a guy, huh? Have you ever seen that? No, no, no. I've heard nothing but bad things. So Carney's performance in Harry and Tonto was almost universally praised. Even the great Pauline Kael doesn't criticize his performance, though she only barely compliments it. But does he deserve the Oscar for Best Actor? We do not think so. Despite the warm reception both he and the film received, I've never had the film suggested to me ever by anyone. And why is that? Because compared to some of these other movies we're going to talk about, Harry and Tonto is entirely forgettable. Yeah, there are a lot of times when researching for this podcast that I am surprised. And really, that goes toward the positive. I'm surprised by how good something is that I have never seen or heard of before. And so now I'm more welcoming to being surprised. I sit down to these older films and I'm like, show me something I should have seen. With that being said, dear audience, let me impress upon you the fact that Harry and Tonto and Art Carney's performance is something you should only see if you want to be baffled, (laughs) baffled by the fact that this actually won the Oscar over anything, let alone our final pick. There's nothing to this performance that says it's award worthy. It's cute. It's a cute film. It's, you know, I chuckled to myself, even in the opening montage with a random video of old people milling about and everything about Carney's performance is like a grumpier old man sans a partner to kind of other than the cat, I guess, like Walter Matthau is the cat (laughs) in this film. And he's just kind of gesticulating to himself throughout the whole thing. He's a cute old man who's got observances of life. But really, as I thought about the Academy Award voters voting on this, I couldn't help myself but think of 70 year old men sitting around a screen chuckling at the younger generation, you know, Mm -hmm. type of thing. That's really the only reason why I could see this possibly winning because even a TV star moving to film and trying to honor that I don't know. Like, I just, I don't, the performance is not helped by the fact that the script isn't great, which we'll get into other films that had great scripts. And Art Carney, maybe it's because one of my favorite pets in my life was an orange tabby cat named Mango, but I couldn't take my eyes away from the cat on the screen. And anytime the cat did something or anytime somebody did something to the cat, I was like, oh, what's going on? (laughs) What's that cat feeling right? You know, like if I give an award to anything, it's to either the cat trainer or cat the it's cat like, wrangler. Yeah, cat wrangler. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. There's um, some of the things they got the cat to do are uh, just the way Carney holds the cat in some of the scenes. It's like, that cat is not appreciating what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> and it makes me think of that. Holy shit. There's a video of a, a sheriff holding a cat doing cats. Oh, yeah. on a, do you know the video I'm talking about? The cat's on a leash and he's like trying to sell this cat to like hey come that when it like attaches to his leg yes it like gets twisted up in the leash and then just sinks its fangs and claws into like the inner thigh of this fat cop and the the shriek that he lets out it it's fantastic uh but i'm with you man orange kitties are best kitties so 
Carney's performance isn't bad. It doesn't deserve an Oscar. And you and I are more than familiar with our share of bad to average movies that have fantastic performances. I mean, last season, we gave Denzel an Oscar for just one of those kinds of movies, The Hurricane. So, but this movie's not good. And Carney, while his legacy in television is certainly intact, is only decent. I appreciated what they were trying to do, a low-budget examination of what it's like to grow old in America. In fact, I think Harry and Tonto probably would have been suited perfectly for an independent feature in the mid-2000s, which makes the idea a little bit ahead of its time, but the execution trash. So, But I do think the market might have embraced it with more than $1.26 million in ticket sales had it come out in you know this era, but it still would have been quickly forgotten, and ultimately that's okay. So that's the award we're taking away, and I think we've thrown enough dirt on its grave to move on to talk about what actually happened this year. So, the Golden Globes, the Golden Globes for comedy never really see themselves all the way to the Oscar stage. It's funny talking about Sandra Bullock in The Blind Side, the same year that she was nominated for a Golden Globe for The Proposal, and I think her performance in The Proposal warranted an Oscar over, she had more, she emoted more in The Proposal than she did in The Blind Side. Just felt better. Felt more real. Yeah. <laughs> so the Golden Globes for comedy this year had James Earl Jones for Claudine, Jack Lemon and Walter Matthau for the front page, and Burt Reynolds for the longest yard. I mean, I was going to talk about it later, but so let us not forget that if we're talking comedic performances, that in 1974, Brooks directed two of the best comedies of all time, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. And, you know, obviously, apart from the dominant supporting cast, in both of those movies. There's no love for either Cleavon Little as Bart in Blazing Saddles or the one and only Gene Wilder as Dr. Frederick Frankenstein in Young Frankenstein. And it's almost unconscionable to think that Wilder was only ever nominated for acting once and it was for the producers, which was Brooks's first film. And that's not to take anything away from Cleavon Little in Blazing Saddles, you know, a role intended for co-writer Richard Pryor, one that they, the studio refused to, to give to him because they wouldn't insure him. But Cleavon Little brings that bright smile and that hearty laugh, just a consummately sweet, occasionally naive sheriff who just wants to do the right thing. And then, of course, again, you've got Wilder, the perfect foil to Cleavon, highlighting his sunny disposition. But I'm assuming you've seen Blazing Saddles since you haven't copped to not seeing it. And it's just, it's it's wild to think what Blazing Saddles would have been if Pryor had been in it instead of Cleavon Little. Mm-hmm. But anyway, <laughs> we can move on. Um, the other two for comedy was Burt Reynolds in The Longest Yard and James Earl Jones for Claudine. Were you able to see either of these? Uh, I've seen The Longest Yard in one ear, not the other. I was not able to see Claudine. Claudine, for everybody listening, is probably that one movie that came out of nowhere and surprised me as far as like watching movies for this episode. And one thing I was not expecting down this road of movies in 1974 was the diversity. Not that it is anything like it is today, but to hear talk of today, you would think movies and the celebration of them look like a 20th century country club. On the contrary, here's this film, which was a standout from the exploitation films of the era. Critics didn't like this film. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a 57% critic score. But as I say, the audience score is 91%, so you know it's enjoyable. Um, and since the critics of the early 70s were more than likely products of the 40s, 50s, and 60s, you had to wonder what biases they had they were sitting down with in the theater. But there can be no denying that this film is a Diane Carroll piece. But James Earl Jones, for all of us who know him as Darth Vader's voice, the skeptical audience member's voice of Field of Dreams, or the blind man with the dog in the sandlot, 
this is a fun watch. He is hilarious in this. And I think about the episode that Second Chance Cinema, where you came on because you recommended Men at Work. And we try to think of another movie where the characters were based around garbage men. James Earl Jones in this movie is a garbage man. He's constantly dealing with the stigma that is attached to it. This whole movie is constantly dealing with the stigmas. It shows a world much like Precious that films acknowledged by the Academy rarely do. A world where people aren't trying to win Slumdog Award shows. They are merely trying to raise children while playing inside the lines without losing their government checks. What I do want to point out is this critical reception of it. Tom Milne of the monthly film Bulletin criticized the film for what he called its, quote, patronizing blacks are really just like us attitude, stating substitute white actors for the black cast, tone down the fashionably outspoken situations little, and it would just be like one of those perennial Disney movies about happy families and the difficulty of living and loving in this problematic world. Which reminds me of what you stated Uh. in our second episode of season one when you talked to the mirror theory. And so paraphrasing his critique, substitute white actors for the black cast, it would be just like one of those movies about happy families and the difficulty of living and loving in this problematic world. So yeah, Tom, that's kind of the whole point. Mm. As far as discovering new things with this podcast, Claudine might be what I'd take away from the most, other than my complete bafflement at Art Carney's win. I got worried. I thought you were going to be like, this reminds me of a really reductive thing that you said one time. Um, well, that sounds really interesting. It's such an interesting film because she plays a single mother of six kids, had them with three different fathers. And James Earl Jones has three kids that he never talks to. And they snip at each other, you know, like calling each other the stereotypes of whatever. Their first date, she is tired. She is, you know, he goes over and sees the situation she's living in. And he's like, why don't you just come back to my place? I'm going to run you a bath and you can have quiet. And that's all that he does. He goes home, like runs her a bath, starts taking off. And she's like, I'm going to take off my own clothes. Thank you very much. And he's like, okay, well, I'll just try to be helpful. And then like (laughs) scurries out of the bathroom. And then he falls asleep on the bed and makes sure that like she's okay. And the bed's like, it's such an interesting love story that I've never seen before. And James Earl Jones, while it's a comedy, he's also dealing with the fact that he's trying to date the mother of six kids. So when he's sitting there, they're trying to like swindle him out of ice cream money and but at the same time he's got like a very strong father's presence and so he's putting everybody in his place it's a really good it's a fantastic performance but nobody i've never even heard of claudine you know and it's only 90 minutes your library i will always say is probably better than mine but it was it was an easy get from the library and all right i'm gonna watch it yeah please do all right so that was comedy moving on to drama two actors and then you have one that wasn't even mentioned as far as dramatic roles go. But the two actors that were not up for Academy Awards was James Kahn in The Gambler and Gene Hackman in The Conversation. Well, we'll get to Gene Hackman, but 
you didn't watch The Gambler? I did this morning. Just one of those 70s movies where it's like, here's your main character. Uh, he's a terrible person. It's going to end badly for him. And, you know, just one of those absolutely nebulous endings where it's just like, <laughs> what? I don't know. I don't know. Um, Same way. I I realize I, I cringe more probably with gambling movies because I don't know the whole like it's like tin cup in a way where you're like, stop, stop. <laughs> Just stop. Help yourself. I was just watching it like, yep, he's going to fuck it up. Yep, he's going to fuck it up. Yep, he's going to fuck it up. I didn't care. <laughs> that's that's enough about The Gambler. I think James Caan is, um, like so many actors, very, very capable at being angry and not much else. Yep. Yep. Okay. So, only film not mentioned in award shows, or two films not mentioned in the award shows. The first one, we don't have to talk about it too long, but The Great Gatsby. This is the Robert Redford version. <laughs> what is it about? I'm a huge fan of F. Scott Fitzgerald's book. I know you are. What mm-hmm. is what is it about the book that makes it so hard to put on film? I don't know. I've seen two of the three cinematic iterations. I have not seen the original from 1949, but uh, yeah, it's just, it seems it's more perfect on paper than film. This one is written by Francis Ford Coppola, who we all but said was a genius the last season. And yet this film, like Baz Luhrmann's, to me, it feels like it's out of focus. And I don't know if it's the opening and closing with Nick Carraway, but and how he's the third most interesting piece because everybody goes to see Gatsby. And yet, you know, it's all bookended by the narrator, Nick Carraway. I don't know if it if like the, a proper adaption would be to be rewriting it for the screen because these ad- adaptations just, I don't know, they still drag for me. See, I don't mind the dragging. It just, it doesn't capture the mood or the tone. I think this one, the 74 one, tries to go for more historical realism, whereas, you know, I mean, Baz Luhrmann goes for Baz Luhrmann. I guess I like the newer one more just because it's, I think it's a better cast. I know that you don't think so. Um, I think maybe DiCaprio might have been miscast. It would have been interesting to throw somebody in there, maybe a little lesser known. Tobey Maguire is just fucking terrible. But uh, (laughs) other than that... (laughs) Other than two of the three leads. (laughs) Well, I mean, Christ, between Tobey Maguire and Sam Watterson, I I don't know. It's like voting, voting for Trump or Biden or fucking uh, Hillary or, you know, give me Weird Al Yankovic, you know? <laughs> and then the other film that got no love was The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, which has Robert Shaw as Mr. Blue. Yeah, we don't have to talk very long on this one, but uh, as far as in the vein of underappreciated actors, I'd say Shaw, Robert Shaw's up there. I mean, if he was ever going to win one, it should have been for the inimitable Quint in Jaws. But I, if I have an opportunity to mention him, I'm going to. And Pelham, which is a really, really good movie. You should check it out. He's a fantastic baddie, cold and confident and kind of weirdly principled for his um, line of work. But I was I thought of Alan Rickman's Hans Gruber from Die Hard and how Rickman's like dry wit accentuated what was essentially Shaw's character from Pelham. But the almost total lack of humor from from Shaw may actually be to his benefit because, you know, you've got Jerry Stiller, Walter Matthau, and even Nathan George, you know, making some pretty well-timed wisecracks. But anywho, 
the movie was fantastic. I mean, it's some of the best action directing I can think of from the seventies. And, um, Shaw is just commands the screen in every, every scene that he's in. I can't believe it took me so long to see this. Is it streaming anywhere? Yeah. It's on Amazon prime right now. So the last actor we have to talk about before we move on to the Academy Awards is probably the guy with the snub because the BAFTAs nominated for an award, the Golden Globes did. And that is Gene Hackman as Harry Cole in the conversation. This is a world of hidden mics and two-way mirrors. A world where nothing is private. Do you think we can do this? Later in the week. Do you think we can do this? Harry Cole is an expert. The best there is. Let me tell you something about Harry Cole. The best bar none. I'll drink to that. Best what? The best bugger on the West Coast. What about me? He can bug anybody, anytime, anywhere. Nobody knows how you did it, though, Harry. It was the hell of a scandal, too. Look, did you see him? The man with the hearing aid, like Charles. He's been following us all They're not people to him. Just voices. Three people were murdered, that's all. He doesn't know them, and they don't know him. It had nothing to do with me. I mean, I just turned in the tapes. Bless me, Father, for I've sinned. I've been involved in some work that I think I think will be used to hurt these two young people. No responsible. I'm not responsible. You're not supposed to feel anything about it. You're just supposed to do it. Be careful, Harry. You're just supposed to listen, not look, not feel, not care. Conversation. There is nothing private about the conversation. Listen. My name is Harry Call. Can you hear me? It's written and directed again by Francis Ford Coppola. And like the first thing, we'll get into Murder on the Orient Express because that was nominated. That had a nominated actor for it. But the beginning and watching the conversation and then going over to Murder the soundtrack to these movies and the way they're shot and the tension and the suspense that develops within them. It's, it freaked me out. (laughs) I'm surprised you like this movie because it, it it is, you know, the first like 45 minutes is, is slow. It's got that slow burn quality to it. 
but which I like. I actually, I really, I'm a fan of slow burn. It's one of my least favorite things of how we evolved as movie goers. And it's one of the things that you kind of go over in film study and like the writing classes that I'm in is how quick paced you need to be as a writer now because of people's attention is very off, um, especially with people watching movies at home more and there's more distractions for them. I read, so this is probably my first time watching the conversation. I've read the screenplay no less than three times. I used to be a uh, subscriber when it was around to a magazine called Scenario. And they would, every magazine would have four screenplays in it with interviews with the writer behind it. Oh, that's cool. And I think my father bought it for me when I was in high school. And in this magazine, all I can remember was there was the sixth sense and the conversation. And I would just read it and read it and read it. That's an interesting double bill. I think it was the sixth sense, the conversation, and I want to say being John Malkovich were the three in there. Interesting. But, uh, and I think it was all about developing story and where the conversation gets it right is they give you pieces of the conversation, pieces of the character, and it just kind of unravels and you're, you're left questioning, what am I getting from this? Like, what am I, something's crazy going on. I know something's crazy going on, but I, I'm still trying to figure out the, uh, the mystery with the man who first and foremost, Gene Hackman does not, he doesn't really care about the mystery at first. It just kind of the seed is planted in his brain and then he, he goes obsessed with it. Yeah. I don't know if it's the visual quality of the day or, but it really, the feeling I got while watching it unfold, I was like being young again and watching, I don't know, like the omen or the exorcist. Like I was getting very unsettled. That's good. That's a good uh, comparison. Yeah. I mean, Coppola really succeeds at making something drastically different than Godfather one and two he's gone on record saying this was the, his favorite movie that ever that he ever made and he really breeds paranoia and anxiety i think the music helps a lot i i can't remember if you mentioned that or not but composer david shire who's been kicking around hollywood nearly as long as john williams scored 12 different films in 1974 10 of them were tv movies or shorts but the other two were the taking of the pelham one two three and this movie the conversation and it's a very distinct score unlike john williams shire didn't get many good scripts to work with throughout the 80s and the 90s he didn't have a he didn't have a spielberg to kind of piggyback on though he tried to forge a working relationship with coppola who turned down the score that he wrote for Apocalypse Now. But his filmography is rather desolate until 07 when Fincher gave him the reins to score Zodiac. Um, Gene Hackman is or was my late father's favorite actor. I love the fact that when Gene Hackman retired, he had 100 credits on the dot on his IMDb that has since got effed up because somebody was like, somebody made something that a character was based on. So now he's got 101. But... He hails from a time when actors didn't do a whole lot of transformation for their roles, but delivered their roles convincingly. The Marlon Brandos and the Meryl Streeps of the world at this time were rare. In fact, like Rooney in A Breakfast at Tiffany or another actor that we're going to talk about later, transformation seemed ridiculous and off-putting. It would be almost a decade later when Hoffman became Tootsie, which I think opened up a lot of doors to possibilities. When I think of Hackman, I think of a man almost in control, a man who 
chuckles at his superiors, knowing he is smarter than them. This is not Hackman here. This Hackman is paranoid, delusional, with a sanity slowly crumbling. He's a listener, not a talker. He spends his life listening to conversations he can't control, and so the conversations he finds him in, himself in personally, he is quick to shut down. Yeah, I'm in the same boat. He plays it so guarded and so soft-spoken. I mean, you said it really well. He's a listener. It's interesting, too, because I think of Hackman as brash and intimidating and outgoing. I mean, French Connection, Hoosiers, Mississippi Burning, and Unforgiven, which I just recently watched in preparation for a future episode, which makes this performance really singular in his career. I mean, he's dabbled in comedy later in his career, but a lot of lot of actors of his generation did. Um it's just, it's interesting, kind of smack dab in the middle of his career. Actually, not even in the middle, like early in his career to make this movie. Well, in 1995, Hackman cited this as his favorite he's ever done. And I don't know of anything in his last nine years of acting that this would top for him. But I would definitely put this performance above Art Carney's. So it's... It's a surprise that it wasn't even nominated. Another thing that I found when researching, one, was surprised that he retired so long ago in 2004. But also this year, Hackman turns 91 years old. And I hope he's in good health because that's old. That is very old. Before we move forward to the final portion of the show, I think it's interesting that we end with him before we get into the nominees because he really was, I mean, he must have been the sixth nominee. He must have lost out by only a little bit. I mean, he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor in 68 and 71, and then he won the gold for Best Actor in 72 for playing Popeye Doyle, the racist super cop and amateur stunt driver. So it stands to reason that at that time, he was poised to be this like common name mentioned in Oscar contention, like Marlon Brando or Paul Newman or even Jack Lemmon. But after he won for The French Connection, he was only nominated two more times, once for Best Actor in Mississippi Burning, which is trash. And once for Best Supporting Actor in Clint Eastwood's postmodern Western Unforgiven, which right or wrong, he won. And it's strange to me how many A-list actors and directors never receive the right award. Instead, they receive the thank you award, the makeup award. Like when Newman finally won Best Actor after Cool Hand Luke, Butch Cast and Sundance Kid, Hustler, HUD, Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, The Sting, Absence of Malice, The Verdict. They gave it to him for Color of Money, which I know was directed by Scorsese and I should give it a second look, but it really was just boring as fuck to me or <laughs> or another example when Pacino finally won for the absolutely ridiculous scent of a woman or when Morgan Freeman lost to Tom Hanks in 94 and then got supporting actor in 05 for Million Dollar Baby I mean there are greater tragedies in life but we're here to talk about movie awards and these consolation Oscars are really one of the many ways that the Academy has slowly realized some glaring fuck-ups and then tried to fix them. Yeah. Gene Hackman is usually the best thing about any movie that he's in. And really, I gave like... You can't say... He's not good enough to save a movie like... I mean, even Denzel Washington couldn't save the hurricane, and I don't think Hackman can hold a can. No, I don't think like Gene Hackman saved the firm, but definitely when he was on the screen and he gave that that chuckle that he does... Or whatever it is, you know, like... That was pretty good, actually. um, (laughs) Yeah, no, always brings a smile to my face, so... So here we go. The nominees this year were, because we haven't gone through... Hey, you know what? How about this? Let's just go through them one at a time instead of listing them. Let's go through them one at a time. So here are the nominees one at a time. And let's start with Mr. Albert Finney playing Hercule Poirot in Murder on the Orient Express, directed by Sidney Lumet. A repulsive murderer has himself 
been repulsively and perhaps deservedly murdered. But in which of the two ways that I have suggested, in the simple way by the mafioso disguised as a wagon reconductor, or in the more complex way that I have just outlined, which involves many questions and, of course, considerable scandal. It's for you, as a director of the line, to choose a solution that we shall offer to the police at Brado. I confess, I am in two minds. Oh, I... I think the police at Brad would uh, prefer the simplicity of the first solution. Did you ever read an Agatha Christie novel, or more to the point, did you ever did you ever read a Poirot Agatha Christie novel? I read, yeah, I've read probably six Agatha Christies. The last one being, and then there were none, mm. which I think is probably my favorite of hers. And the original title for that, Ten Little Indians, uh, wasn't no, it? No. Oh, you don't know that story? <laughs> no. Oh well, it contains the N word. Oh, it wasn't. Oh, no. It wasn't Ten Little Indians. It was Ten Little. Ew. Yeah. And I was Why? trying, I was trying to figure exactly. Well, I've never read the book. So I, I mean, the title is probably rather paramount to the, to the big reveal. Um, no, but I was, <laughs> <It's not>. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I was trying to, I was trying to find her where she was trying to be, you know, explain it and be like, well, I was intended to be satirical because of the blah, 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 blah. But sh- it was never explained huh. where I could find it anyway. All right, so we're going to talk about Albert Finney again in this season. We talked about him in episode one in another Sidney Lumet film, um, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Finney's somebody that I've come to appreciate like more and more. The more I've seen of his, the older I've gotten. And it's sort of baffling to me that he never won a gold statue. Here he plays, as I said, the Belgium-born international detective created by Agatha Christie, Hercule Poirot, man. That sucks. My French accent sucks. So he was immortalized in like 33 novels, two plays, which I did not know, Black Coffee and Alibi, and then more than 50 short stories published between 1920 and 1975. Lots of parallels here between Poirot and Sherlock. Like the Sherlock creator, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, Agatha Christie started to kind of regret her creation. And by 1960, she felt, you know, 40 years in that he was a detestable, bombastic, tiresome, egocentric little creep, her words. But unlike Doyle, Christie felt that it was her duty to produce what the public liked. Doyle killed off Sherlock. I mean, he brought him back, but as prequels. And she hesitated for a long while in killing killing him off. Um, In fact, one report says... After only 10 years of writing Poirot stories, so it would have been 1930, Christie already found her own character insufferable. Even more interesting, maybe that wasn't interesting at all, but I think it's interesting because I can't create characters for the life of me. The best comparison, I think, between these two detectives is the amount of times that they've been portrayed in film and television. Sherlock is the most frequently adapted character in all of cinema and television. It's like over 250 film and television portrayals. 
and Poirot can't beat Baker Street on that one. But I mean, there are still plenty of actors who've stepped up to play the mustachioed detective beginning in 1928 and on the stage with Charles Lawton. And then most recently, John Malkovich in BBC TV's 2018 adaptation of the ABC murders. Kenneth Branagh's obviously working on his second take as Poirot in Death of the Nile, which eventually will come out with or without Army Hammer, but he already played him once. So the most recent would have been Malkovich. So let's talk Finney. I tried to find research to see if Finney sort of set the bar for Poirot performances. And I couldn't find anybody saying that back in 1974 or even today. But you can find a little bit of truth in, I guess, evidently after this movie came out, Finney felt that he was so well known for just this role that it typecast him for a number of years. He was quoted as saying that people do think I am 300 pounds with a French accent, which I'm sure is a drag for any actor to get typecast. But what it means is his performance was indelible, like Dolores Umbridge, you know, Imelda Staunton playing Dolores Umbridge in uh, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix. I can't see that woman and not think of Dolores Umbridge. And that's just a testament to how absolutely fucking good she is in that. I mean, she's such a bitch in that movie, but his, his performance is good. It's nuanced. It's such lived in mannerisms. And for that alone, I think that he deserved the Oscar over Carney. Have you ever seen Tom Jones? I haven't. And I want to, I want to, because I'm, I've been digging Finney more and more lately. Well, I think we'll get to Tom Jones because that's 69, 63. Oh, wow. That'd be the long, that'd be the, if we get, are we going to get to it now? Or you mean like on a future episode? On a future episode that, because that's kind of the way to 63. (laughs) Hey, I mean, we can't like, who knows what we'll have to scrape for together, but the uh, Tom Jones. So I like Albert. I like the recent Albert Finney stuff. Tom Jones is probably the oldest thing I've seen him in. He was nominated for best actor in that. That movie won best picture. That movie was really tough to suffer through. Really? And so it put a bad taste in my mouth when it came to Albert Finney, because of course he's Tom Jones in Tom Jones. You see a lot of them but that movie i was just watching kind of with that you know the what the fuck expression on my face what am i getting into tom jones might be top five one of the worst best picture awards ever handed out in my opinion but that's not to talk about anything that is in murder at the orient express he does transform himself in this role like you can't tell that it's albert finney which i love but did you, you didn't find this performance caricature-y? <laughs> caricature-y? caricature-y. Um, <laughs> I feel like, well, I mean, Poirot's a caricature. Sherlock's a caricature. Any character that is put on paper so much that, I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger is a caricature, if you ask me. He's, he's, you become a parody of yourself the longer you linger. But James Bond, I mean, he was getting a caricature with the Pierce Brosnan years, but I feel like he got back into verisimilitude. Well, I mean, I wouldn't argue with you. I guess my one beef with his performance is his intonation, like when he gets on a roll, his intonation and his volume rarely fluctuate. And he he stays in this kind of place right here. And it's... You just reminded me of Gary Oldman from The Darkest Hour. (laughs) You don't put your head in a lion's mouth! (laughs) Or whatever he said. (laughs) 
I really, I saw Kenneth Branagh's Murder on the Orient Express, the one that just came out a couple years back. I saw it before I saw this. So I knew Mm -hmm. the reveal already. And I had to say, I think Branagh's is beautiful. And I think Lumet is an amazing filmmaker. I mean, he hasn't missed a step. The editing, the pacing, Lumet's fantastic. And I find this movie just looks like I'm watching television. It looks like I'm watching, I mean, it looks like I'm watching Poirot on BBC. I'm interested in uh, Malkovich's take on it. Did you watch that one? I haven't, but that's one of the ones I'm familiar with, not because I read it, but because I played a video game about it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's hard to look at both adaptations on Murder of the Orient Express when the novel itself reminds me of the era. I think of the yellowing, thick pages and frayed spines with the smell of the dark corners of your grandparents' house. I understand what Finney is trying to do when people are talking to him and he his eyes are jumping all over the place. Like he's acting like he's processing what they are saying. But to me, it looks like he's struggling to understand. And I, I just didn't like that. For me, it was Anthony Perkins who stole the show in this movie. And then it was funny because he has that moment where he's talking about his mother and the camera goes in and you're like, ah, it's kind of like a prequel. <laughs> yeah, and I thought I thought that same thing. Um, he's fine. I was I couldn't take my eyes off of Vanessa Redgrave. I remember the first time I saw Mission Impossible, the first one, Brian De Palma's, um, which I still think is the best one. You know, people shit on that movie for being slow or being you know, confusing. I think that is far and away the best Mission Impossible. Two was far and away the worst. So totally. But anyway, I would have given Finney the award over Carney. I mean, uh, you're going to hear. Would me you say- give the nomination to Finney over Hackman? No, no. I think that's the. That will be the barometer. Here's a question. Was nominated for Best Actor? No, probably not. Should have looked that up. Let's move on. Quickies. Remember? Yeah. Dustin Hoffman as Lenny Bruce in Lenny is probably third on the list of nominations because we already put Art Carney at fifth. Okay. Uh, I don't know how many of you know it, but I was arrested, busted, right here on this stage a few nights ago for saying no. Not gonna say it. <laughs> Let's see. It's an 11 letter word. It starts with a C and ends with a G. And it was used, it was used in the context of defending a certain homosexual practice. Actually, though, I don't relate it only to homosexuals. I relate it to any contemporary woman I know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Would know or love or marry, and I'm sure you do too if you're honest, right? Okay, I'd like to ask you all a few questions now, okay? And you're all under oath, all of you. Even standing room only. <laughs> How many people in this club here tonight have ever used that word? <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Don't be shy, you can raise your hands. Well, that's cool. Now let's get really honest. You, sir, have you ever had your blah blonde? Hmm? No, I don't, it's either yes or no. There's no two ways about it. Okay. How many men in this room have ever had their blah blonde? Raise your hands. Oh, come on, officers. Now you're on the road. All right. Now, keep your hands raised. How many men in this room have ever blah a blah? Somebody's not telling the truth. <laughs> okay, ma'am, tell me, have you ever blah a blah? Well, that's so sweet. The officers couldn't see it, but she went like this, and he went like this. 
This time the whole audience gets swept away, right? This is the dirtiest show I've ever done in my life. This is really filth. Now, if there is anyone in this room who has not found this obscene, then you're full of blah, and I hope you never get your blah blah again. That's my entire show for tonight. Thank you for nothing. This is another one directed by Bob Fosse, who, I mean, I mean, I'm starting to think I need to watch everything the man's ever made. It's really undeniably talented. But uh, Bruce was absolutely revolutionary in the field of comedy. And if, and if it weren't for comics like Bruce or Pryor or Carlin, there wouldn't have been folks like Hicks, Chappelle or Burr. So modern comedy owes a lot to Lenny, unless, of course, you agree with Ebert's claim that Lenny Bruce was, to a great extent, a self-made martyr. But Hoffman, let's talk Hoffman. I keep getting sidetracked with movies, but I think Hoffman's spectacular, not just because he embodies a good portion of who Lenny Bruce was, but more to the point because he has the confidence to just give the passion over and give over to the madness of Lenny Bruce. And more than, I'm just speculating here, but I have to assume that Fosse gave Hoffman, uh, I'm sure that the two of them had a very good working relationship because Hoffman is not a woman. And I'm sure that he gave Hoffman lots of room to create and improvise. And there are several scenes where like overlapping dialogue suggests that there was extemporaneous performances happening. And these are the most documentary uh, style sequences in the whole movie, even though I know Fosse's going for that the whole time. But several reviewers pointed out that the film's a little more about Lenny Bruce's failed marriage than it is about his comedy career. And I, I can't, you can't fault, you can't deny that. And that's probably in part because Fosse steered it that way. He had this empathy for the doomed artistic genius and probably because that was a lot of what his life was becoming and had become and the direction it was headed. I mean, if you look at all that jazz, which he made five years later, you can draw a lot of parallels between that and this. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, yeah. But you're talking about the film again. And not- Fuck. All right. I'll give it. A- <laughs> all right. Fine. I just wanted to say one other thing. Fosse's films have some of the best editing. Some of the cuts in this movie are so inventive. <laughs> Well, I mean, it makes the performance better, doesn't it? I don't know. I think Hoffman does. All right, I think Hoffman's great here, but you know, if he ever should have won one, it should have been in 1970 for his performance in the 1969 film Midnight Cowboy, playing Razzo Rizzo. That's the best best work he ever did. Better than Rain Man. Better than Kramer versus Kramer. Better than Mumbles and Dick Tracy. Oh yeah, Mumbles. Would you give Hackman the nom over Huffman? No, we already got Hackman in for, there's, there's more here. There's more here. Hackman, I mean, the most Hackman had to do was, was mute himself a little bit and then let the, let the craziness come out. There's so much more here. Wouldn't, I mean, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, there's definitely more, but so here's the thing. Perhaps it was because of all that jazz that we watched last year that I was expecting something better, which is unfair for the film Lenny, but. I don't know. Maybe it's because I grew up in an era of Andrew Dice Clay that I was numb to the sexual humor. I understand how this could have been have made women clutch their pearls in the past. But by the time I was watching comedy, Robin Williams, you know, was burying his mouth in the crook of his hairy elbow and looking out at the audience and asking, is this what it looks like, ladies? (laughs) (laughs) I've never fucking. You can't fucking be serious. (laughs) Look at me. I'm goo boy. What are you doing? No. That's right, Corky. It's time to saddle up. We're heading south of the border. You gotta please Missy. And I have one question for the ladies. Do we look like this? (laughs) 
I've talked to Dustin Hoffman before and said he's a fantastic line reader. He executes the material with a flourish and doesn't hit a beat that we don't believe in. But in this role, I feel like he was supposed to become a different person. And yet here he is, Dustin Hoffman, regurgitating Lenny Bruce jokes. Maybe it's because I live in a time when Luke Kirby is fantastic to watch in Amazon Prime's The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel's Lenny Bruce. And that's my first introduction to a Lenny Bruce, that when I go back and watch Lenny, I watch Dustin Hoffman as Lenny Bruce. I can see that. So it could just be how I came to this film that is blurring my watch of it. I think you need to... Uh, Lou Kirby is cool. Hoffman's not cool. Hoffman, his, the best parts, in my opinion, are the beginning when he's the like struggle, you know, and I know it cuts back and forth, but also think about just the, the physicality of that role. Lou Kirby just, all he has to do is put on the reservoir dog suit and stand in front of the audience and crack wise. And he's got a great voice and he's cute. And there's that like, will they, won't they thing with her and, or with him and uh, Miss Maisel, which is sexy, but, Hoffman, I mean, think about that scene where he and his wife are in the green room and they must be on heroin or something because homie can't even stand. And he's like, come, come on. He's like, I'm pr-. and then when he finally stands up, he's like, I'm proud of you, Lenny. It's fucked up, dude. Mm. <laughs> mm. What stands out in my head is just when he's like sitting on the ground talking to his lawyers. Those to me were like the best, but I like those scenes where I think it's because of there's a lot of stand up in there where he's talking to the audience that I craved more scenes where he was interacting with somebody else. Well, if all that jazz is an indicator, Fossey might have overthought this one a little bit. Um, if you remember the scene in all that jazz, which desperately hope that we could find a clip of, but we couldn't where, uh, can't remember the actor's name the guy that plays the dad and alf is like <laughs> down down his throat uh gideon's throat being like bro you have to finish the movie and deliver it for the love of oh, christ yeah. so i mean he more than likely spent way too long cutting and recutting and cutting and recutting and cutting to the point where he may have hurt the movie i don't know who knows but i don't know i would agree with you i would say that's third that he's third so I really feel that if our audiences know 1974, that they don't know who we might select because both of these at the top are two of the most famous performances of all time. But in second place, Jack Nicholson in Chinatown. As Jake Giddes. I found these in your backyard in the pond. They belonged to your husband, didn't they? Didn't they? I don't know. Yes, probably. Yes, positively. It's where he was drowned. What? There's no time to be shocked by the truth. The coroner's report proves that he had salt water in his lungs when he was killed. Just take my word for it, all right? Now, I want to know how it happened, and I want to know why, and I want to know before Escobar gets here, because I don't want to lose my license. I don't know what you are talking about. This is the craziest, the most insane thing. Stop it! I'm going to make it easy for you. You were jealous. You had a fight. He fell. He hit his head. It was an accident. But his girl is a witness. So you had to shut her up. You don't have the guts to harm her, but you got the money to keep her mouth shut. Yes or no? No! Who is she? And don't give me that crap about your sister because you don't have a sister. I'll tell you... I'll tell you the truth. Good. What's her name? Catherine. Catherine who? She's my daughter. I said I want the truth. She's my sister. 
She's my daughter. My sister, my daughter. I said I want the truth. She's my sister and my daughter. Directed by your best buddy, <laughs> Roman Polanski. I had to look up when this was in Jack Nicholson's repertoire because to watch it now, you're simply like, ah, it's Jack, you know, it's the, it's the Nicholson we all know and love and miss. Holy God, do I miss this guy on my screen? 100. Um, but directed by Roman Polanski, who we talked about in season one, Chinatown is still hailed as the best screenplay ever written. And screenplays ain't shit if they're not acted well. Uh, one thing that I want to get into on this show is the fact that when they award best screenplay, a lot of the times nobody reads the screenplay. They're awarding screenplay based off of what they see on the screen, which there's a style and there's a craft that goes into screenwriting as I want to impress upon our audience. But Town wrote the script with Nicholson in mind, who told Polanski about it, and that's how the three found their project. But it wasn't all rosebuds and daisies, as it seemed Polanski and Town had a lot of dis- disagreements over the script, and Nicholson was the calm eye of the storm. I can't imagine Nicholson being the calm eye of anything. <laughs> But continue. Uh, he seems like probably one of those guys where, like, if somebody else is crazier in the room, he stops talking. You know, like, I could see him just being the watcher after that. Oh, no, uh, I could see him being the, like, oh, you think you're fucking nuts? <laughs> <laughs> his performance makes you wish he did more of these types of films. He always has a flair for the more weird, the cocked eyebrows and the low growl. That's why when he was cast as a werewolf in the film Wolf with Michelle Pfeiffer, I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And then it wasn't. But as a scrutinizer, as somebody who sits in tailored suits and reads the room, bro, <laughs> I'm on board. <laughs> like, love it. I would say that his performance here in Chinatown is seems effortless. Uh, maybe it's because, as you basically said, he was so consistently good across the 70s and 80s. Or maybe it's because the script gives him and everybody really so much solid material to work with. You know, maybe it's the throwback to the Dashiell Hammetts. It's probably just because Jack's a great actor. I don't know about you, but my personal favorite scenes are the ones that he shares with, with John Houston, who was the father of his then-girlfriend, Angelica Houston. So uh, while they never got married, he and Angelica Houston were together for a long period of time. So to have that kind of repertoire with his girl's dad slash American icon slash filmmaker, it's pretty great. I mean, the scene where they sit down to eat the fish is one of the best. I mean, it's probably my favorite scene in the whole movie. As long as you don't serve the chicken that way. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me, um... What are the blues? They're calling it an accident. Who's the investigating officer? Lou Escobar. He's a lieutenant. You know him? Oh, yeah. Where from? We used to work together in Chinatown. <clears throat> Would you call him a capable man? Very. Honest? As far as it goes. Of course, he has to swim in the same water we all do. Of course, but you've no reason to think he's bungled the case. None. Not too bad. Too bad? Hmm. Disturbs me. It makes me think you're taking my daughter for a ride. Financially speaking, of course. What are you charging her? My usual fee. Plus a bonus if I get results. Are you uh, sleeping with her? 
Come, come, Mr. Gibbs. You don't have to think about that, remember, do you? If you want an answer to that question, Mr. Cross, I'll put one of my men on the job. I also enjoy his patter at the Mar Vista Inn and Rest Home, where he's trying to get all the information and he keeps asking questions and then pretending like that was the answer that he was hoping that the guy was going to give. It's it's an iconic movie. I know I'm not supposed to talk about movie, the movie, but you got it. You got it. So it's an iconic movie. Nicholson's great in it. But like I said, uh, the following year, he came out with Cuckoo's Nest. And in my opinion, it was it, when he won for Cuckoo's Nest, that was, that was the one that he really, mm-hmm. really deserved. But- Again, I would have still given him the Oscar over Carney yet again. Yeah. And really, if Jack Nicholson won the Oscar for this year, I don't think this would be an episode choice. No. I think those it would be kind of one of those like, yeah, okay, I understand that. I could stomach that. <laughs> Chinatown is Nicholson in a crisp suit, so it, so clean that it's jarring when Polanski slices his nostril with the knife. Ooh, you know, you, just, made, you made me just think of my, uh, do the, the part where those two, like, avocado farmers mm-hmm. are, like, attacking him and he's, like, trying to fight him off. <laughs> <laughs> Dude keeps hitting him with the crutch and he's like, hit me again with that thing. You're going to need two of them. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking great. That whole scene is terrifying where he's like speeding through the avocados too. Yeah. Like this, I think the sad, the thing that saddens me about Jack Nicholson's performance in Chinatown is we don't get a lot of this Jack Nicholson in his career. And I don't think he's officially said he's retired, but he definitely hasn't shown it up for anything in the past couple of years. So isn't, isn't there word that he's... Yeah, but I don't want to put it on air. Oh, okay. Fair enough. Um, yeah. So yeah, I miss him. I mean, I don't miss, oh, I don't miss bucket list and something's got to give, but I miss him. Or about Schmidt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that was Alexander Payne back when he was just knocking it out of the park. So, but for anybody that knows what we're doing, what we're talking about for 1974, I don't think it comes as any surprise that we are taking the Oscar away from Art Carney and Harry Antonto, and we are rightfully giving it over to Al Pacino as Michael Corleone, Godfather Part Two. If anything in this life is certain, if history's taught us anything, it says you can kill anyone. Well, is it worth it? My father taught me many things here. He taught me, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Godfather is a term of affection, one of respect. This is the business we've chosen. Everybody out? 
Oh my gosh, to think about how much this movie, like how much time, how many locations, how much plot this movie covers. And then I fucking love this movie, man. And then to think (laughs) and then to think about how he was also working on the conversation for which he won the Palm d'Or, in fact. And his script was over doing The Great Gatsby. Well, I think he had, he might have, did he write that in the same year? It might have been written ahead of no. time. Oh, yeah. But in the same instance, you still, the script is never done until the movie's been filmed. So fair, they fair enough. probably were like, hey, we need a, a, a line here. Well. And he's like, I got this other two fucking things going on. like. <laughs> Well, okay. If you're listening to the show, you're falling into one of three categories. Either you're a good friend of ours who hates movies, you're a good friend of ours who likes movies, or you're somebody who stumbled into this show because you like movies. So I want to talk to two of those three categories right now, because I think our (laughs) friends will always love us. We don't have anything new to add to the discussion of Godfather. I mean, what could we possibly say that hasn't already been said about Godfather Part 2 or Godfather Part 1 or even Godfather Part 3? And I got to say, too, every time I watch Godfather 1 and 2, it's just like when I watch Alien and Aliens. I know I should stop at the second, but I'm like, nah, let's keep going. In 73, Coppola was nominated for Best Director for the first Godfather, but he lost to a guy that we've already been talking about, Bob Fosse for Cabaret. I haven't seen Cabaret, but like I said, I, I got I got to see it. I got to see everything Fosse did. But FCC comes back in 74, not just with the conversation, but with the very ambitious follow-up to Godfather Part 1, Godfather Part 2, for which he won Best Director. And, you know, that ambition didn't even top out until 1979, but we covered that at last season in case you missed it. Anyway, I think that that Oscar that they gave him for Godfather Part Two was cumulative. I think it was like a, I think it was a recognition of not just his work on Part Two, but on Part One as well. Um, but then again, let's go back to 72. In the first Godfather, three of Vito Corleone's sons were nominated that year for Best Supporting Actor. James Caan as Sonny, Robert Duvall as Tom Hagen, and Al Pacino as Michael. And Pacino was the most deserving, but none of them won. Joel Grey, I believe is the man's name, won Best Supporting Actor for the Bob Fosse film Cabaret. But Pacino was the most deserving. And why? Because of that character arc. Because this man goes from war hero to mob boss, and all because he wants to avenge the attempt on his father's life. Even though he says it's not personal, it's not personal, Sonny. It's just business, he says with his jaw wired up. I don't believe him. He's just cooler headed than his uh, volatile older brother. There's one thing I noticed, and I know that we're supposed to be talking about Godfather Part 2, but like I'm saying, I think that that if if we have carte blanche to give him this award, I want to view it as a cumulative award, a Best Actor Award for Godfather Part 2 in recognition of his work in both Godfather 1 and 2. There's a scene that I, I, I never noticed this. And I've seen the first God. I mean, I've seen both of these movies. I couldn't even count how many times. There's a scene where Enzo the Baker helps Michael scare off the hitmen outside the hospital. You know that scene I'm talking about? The hitmen drive off. Enzo tries to light a cigarette, but he can't. So Michael lights it for him. Um, Enzo's hands are shaking like crazy. He can't even, he can't light his Zippo. So Mike, Michael takes it, lights a cigarette for him. And then as he closes the Zippo, he's like, there's a there's a, a shot of his, his hands closing the Zippo. And then it cuts back to Michael's face and he's looking at his hands. And in that moment, he realizes, oh, my hands aren't shaking. I've never, I never know, I never noticed that before. And why? Presumably because he realizes at this moment that, you know, his experiences in the war prepared him for an event such as this. Uh, it just, I don't know. You're going to talk about it, so I'll, I'll let you do it. But he, he plays this role so close to the vest, to the chest. What's the phrase? <laughs> both. It can both be. To the, to the chest breast vest. <laughs> 
Um, yeah, he, he, that you have to be watching really closely to pick up on what it is that's going through his head. And that's where Francis Coppola's direction um, and Gordon Willis's cinematography help to tell Michael's story. So then when you get to when you get to the end of Godfather One, killing Salasso, killing McCluskey, taking over for his ailing father, settling all the family business, it all seems inevitable. Like there's no blaming a Lady Macbeth in this story. It is all on Michael. Yeah, if we ever talk of greatest movies of all time, Godfather Part Two will certainly be mentioned. Well, good thing um, you're going to talk about Godfather Part Two because all I did was talk about Part One. <laughs> it's not just what is on the screen, but it was what was realized beforehand. Godfather Part One is a masterpiece, and to come back for Part Two and explain the journey of Michael through a prequel of Vito Corleone coming to the country and starting his family, which ties the two films together, I can't think of another one-two punch that does this. I believe just me that Lord of the Rings is probably the greatest trilogy of all time. But even that goes from movie to movie, not one strengthening the last, but rather taking you on a journey. Godfather 1 and 2 created a genre. Sure, there were gangster movies before them, but it wasn't until the 1970s when genre theory came to the focus of academic study and gangster films became a subgenre. So Godfather 1 um, was Marlon Brando's time to shine. The man was brilliant in it and was even supposed to show up in this one, which I'm split on if I would want it because he was supposed to show up in the end. He was originally written to show up at the birthday party at the end. Oh, I think it's, which it's perfect the way they left it, where everybody mm-hmm. everybody leaves Michael alone at the table and you just hear, oh, I thought it was perfect. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> oh, no. No, but like that, I totally agree with you. On the one hand, I want him to show up kind of like Darth Vader at the end of Rogue One, you know, and you're like, oh, there he is. Like there's, you know, because in The Godfather, he became all of our godfathers, became the man that you want to wait in line for at the wedding just to see, just to shake his hand, just to have five second audience with. But in this one, part two is Al Pacino's. It is all Michael. And it makes you want to go back to part one because the first time you're watching part one, you're watching Marlon Brando. And the second time you're realizing that Michael, that Al Pacino is phenomenal. I think it's interesting that you say that it's all Michael because the Academy felt it was still all Vito because the only time a, well, two different part actors two was all Michael. Right. But who did the Academy award this year? Best supporting actor to Robert De Niro playing Vito Corleone. So all of the Academy rather than and that rather than shifting their focus to the next generation and the story of Michael, we're still hung. I mean, De Niro is amazing. You can't take anything away from De Niro. But I mean, did he really deserve best supporting actor playing Vito? That's a hot take, but uh, I think it was given to him. It was like a residual award left over from the love that that the Academy still had for this character, Vito Corleone. I'm not saying. Maybe. uh, Yeah, I mean. Well, it makes sense, though, if Al Pacino wins Best Actor and Robert De Niro wins Best Supporting Actor, because these are this is the finest film of the year. These performances are one and two, the greatest performances of the year. I will never, till my my deathbed, understand Art Carney getting into the conversation. (laughs) All I'm saying, though, is you said if Pacino wins. I don't want to take it away from De Niro. I'm just saying it's a little telling where the Academy's heads were. I mean, to take a page out of your book. It's a little telling that, I mean, in Godfather Part 1, yes, we're supposed we're supposed to look with reverence upon Marlon Brando's character, despite the fact that, yeah, he's, there are worse dudes in the world. You know, Michael certainly became a worse Don, uh, far more vicious and evil than Vito ever was. But there is this... 
there's this sincere reverence um, that old people have for other old people and for the olden times. And that's what Vito Corleone represents, which that's what I mean when I'm saying they gave it to De Niro. Maybe he didn't deserve it. Maybe he's kind of just doing a good, good enough job. His storyline is amazing. I think the, the I'm not trying to take anything away. It's just kind of telling. I don't know. It's, it's telling to me that rather than recognize both of them, they choose, let's just recognize Vito again, because he represents uh, an era that we can get behind. Whereas Michael, Michael is too terrifying to us. Michael represents the future. Michael represents these younger generations that quite frankly, we don't know what direction they're going to take our country in. I understand what you're saying, but there is like a point in crazy that I just can't rationalize anymore. And I cannot rationalize how out of their minds, how one too many over the cuckoo's nest, the Academy Awards were Academy voters to put Art Carney (laughs) on the stage over my, like, I don't think there is any rationalization. I don't think it's like, here it is for Vito. Like there you go. Vito Corleone was probably sitting around, you know, between his, his age in Godfather Part 2 and his age in Godfather Part 1, he's probably sitting around watching the Honeymooners. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So back to Al Pacino, though. Right, and so. here's the thing about revisiting these films, even if we don't have to convince our listeners that Pacino is a great actor and that he deserved it. When it comes to The Godfather Part 2, he's subtly great. I think a problem in today's filmmaking is that film doesn't cost what it did back in the day. Sure, unions and payrolls have blown through the roof in budgets, but the digital cameras nowadays don't make a sound like back in the day when rolls of film would whirl through the machines, reminding actors that every take that's not good, every flubbed line was money wasted, was money on the floor. And so, so much preparation, rehearsal, alone time with the material went into the script even before you got to set. And then, because the editing process was done by hand, the cut are longer. The scenes are longer. The amount of time an actor is on screen, the length of how long they need to get it right is so much more than it is today. The average shot length in 1930 was around 12 seconds and declined pretty consistently until today when it is around 2.5 seconds. So 1970 can say somewhere between, we could say somewhere between eight and 10 seconds, four times as long as scenes today. I love these conversations about film versus digital. And that's, I mean, that is a great point. I think you cribbed it a little bit, uh, made it your own, but you cribbed it a little bit out of that documentary side by side. But what an, what an excellent point. And it's, it is, it's about time. Well, and how does Pacino use this time for this movie? By practicing what he preaches, by practicing what Michael preaches about not telling anyone your thoughts who doesn't need to hear them. He sits silently for most of the film, intaking, playing mental chess until the script tells him to enact his plans. It's such a quiet performance that when he blows up, it's profound. It's a film that has been studied and studied, and I know I can learn every single thing about it if I wanted to. Like you said, we're not adding anything here, but I could put it on every couple of years or so and watch it. This film is like what I was talking about with Fincher and The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. This film is 200 minutes long. It is over three hours, and when it ends, God damn it! if you don't want more. We all wanted more. It's why we rushed to part three, and if part three was on par or better than one and two, I, I don't even know know (laughs) how that could even be possible it's amazing it's absolutely amazing and it was al pacino's film 
to carry. And I, he did an amazing job. And it's just amazing the Academy either couldn't see it or were just so unworthy of their voting power to put Art Carney anywhere near Al Pacino's performance. For some reason on this last viewing, I noticed because uh, I watched, I don't know about you, but I watched one and then two. Did you do, did you do both of them together? No, I just did two. Okay. Yeah. I watched one and two. So I, I was, I was trying to think of it, like I said, as one cumulative award slash performance for that award. He never loved Kay. He never loved her. She was his consolation prize. I mean, he negotiated to marry her so that he could begin a family. When he goes back to her in part one and tells her that he loves her, no, he loved uh, Apollonia. Apollonia was the girl. He tells Kay before before he ever kills Salasso and McCluskey, he tells Kay, go back to New Hampshire. I'll call you. And then she says, when am I going to see you again? And he's like, I don't know. He, I mean, he never loved her, never gave a shit about her, but it was Apollonia that, you know, that took his heart. And then when she was killed, I mean, you, you can sit there and you can stack up all of the awful things that happened to Michael that make him who he is. And it's interesting that he never talks about the war. I actually read, I know. I read, I read Mario Puzo's <laughs> The Godfather and it, granted it was a long time ago, but I have no memory of him, of there being any kind of narrative or dialogue where he discusses his experiences in the war, which were no doubt horrific. I, I would say the, the most poignant moment in the film, this viewing, because I've kind of worked through the whole Fredo thing, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is awful, uh, but I've kind of worked through the whole Fredo thing. The part in this movie that, that got me the most on this most recent viewing is where he comes home and finds Kay. He comes home to Lake Tahoe, the Lake Tahoe house, and he finds Kay in the house. This is after she has admitted to him um, that she aborted their child in an effort to subvert his legacy, which is, you know, pretty equally vicious. Okay. We're gonna leave tomorrow. Okay, why don't you take the kids back to their room? Michael, you haven't heard me. Okay, what do you want from me? Do you expect me to let you go? Do you expect me to let you take my children from me? Don't you know me? Don't you know that that's an impossibility, that that could never happen? That I'd use all my power to keep something like that from happening? Don't you know that? In time, you'll feel differently. You'll be glad I stopped you now. I know that. I know you blame me for losing the baby. Yes. I know what that meant to you. I'll make it up to you, Kay. I swear I'll make it up to you. I'll... I'm gonna change. I'll change. I've learned that I have the strength to change. And you'll forget about this miscarriage. And we'll have another child. And we'll go on. You and I. We'll go on. Oh. Oh, Michael. Michael, you are blind. It wasn't a miscarriage. It was an abortion. An abortion, Michael. Just like our marriage is an abortion. Something that's unholy and evil. 
I didn't want your son, Michael. I wouldn't bring another one of your sons into this world. It was an abortion, Michael. It was a son, a son, and I had it killed because this must all end. I know now that it's over. I knew it then. There would be no way, Michael. No way you could ever forgive me. Not with this Sicilian thing that's been going on for 2,000 years. You won't take my children. I will. You won't take my children. You're much. Yeah, when he comes home and finds her there and she's just trying to say goodbye to her kids and get the fuck out before Michael gets in and he appears in that doorway, he looks sickly. Like his skin is sallow. His face is gaunt. I mean, he just he wanders around the Lake Tahoe home like an angel of death. And all the while, the shadow of his father's absolutely unmatchable legacy accentuates the contamination of his reign, of his family, of his life. I mean, it's breaking bad. I would say Walter White would be the next closest character arc like this, where you have someone who is ostensibly a good person, a laudable person who just becomes an absolute monster. Someone that you fear you could become. And it's interesting, Coppola wanted to name the third godfather. He wanted to name it the death of Michael Corleone. And then, I mean, if we would follow that logic through, part one could be renamed the rise of Michael Corleone. And part two would probably be called the fall of Michael Corleone. The final shot of him just sitting alone, isolated. He's won, but he hasn't. And, you know, I said that we weren't going to talk about how, how about this for a quick, quick button to this conversation? Why do men love these movies? I cannot for the life of me get my wife to watch these. She bought these for me 15 years ago when the first box set came out. And I have never gotten her to watch any of them. Why do we love them so much? Is it because our dad showed them to us? Is it the, you know, that the moral quandaries are men attracted to that? Am I being, am I wrong? Do women also love these movies? No. Yeah, because I've had my share of long-term girlfriend. None of them have liked these films. And really, that's the time I tried to get a girl to watch them. Or she did watch them because she watched all the Best Picture winners. She was like, I just don't like the Mafia films because they're just they're just violent they're just people killing people and really (laughs) i have a theory i don't have a theory on the mafia i don't mind the mafia and the mafia necessarily isn't violent so oh my this is not gonna be a quick button that's what i'm trying (laughs) to figure out if i want to get into it there's a masculinity of course to the mafia movies if there's females listening if we have any female listeners to this <laughs> podcast my wife um, listens when i put it on in the car it's not just dudes killing so okay if you didn't watch the godfather movies you probably don't understand necessarily where the mafia came from the mafia's italian name is la cosa nostra which means our thing so the sicilian island is a very small little island off the coast of italy during their history they would constantly be getting overrun with other governments and so the people because their governments kept changing developed la cosa nostra it was our thing people paid taxes to each other they protected each other it was like an 
underground government. And that is how the mafia was formed, which is not a bad thing. You know, like the origination of the mafia is something that I think maybe needs to be explored a little bit more as corporate overlords are taking over our neighborhoods and closing down mom and pop shops. That was a tough question. And it was. I, I apologize for putting you on the spot. Um, I like the mafia, though. <laughs> I, th- I want more of it. I like the mafia. Well, that's the end of the discussion. Sort of anticlimactic to say that. There is no doubt in our minds that Al Pacino should have won Best Actor in 1975 for his performance in The Godfather Part 2. And Art Carney shouldn't have even been nominated. We would kick him out and put Hackman for the conversation in, and I think that would have been a better look. And at that point, I think it would have been been between Pacino and Nicholson, but we choose to give it to Al Pacino. But here's the whole process of the Poly Academy Quickie series of season two is Pacino did win for a performance coming up. And we believe that it was in political nature because he missed out on all these fine performances of his past. It was the thank you. Here's your here's your thank you. We're sorry, Oscar. Has he only won one? Yes. And we're going to cover that performance and why it's terrible in the next episode of Spro and Lee Take on the Academy. And we're going to reaward them shits. So be here in uh, two weeks if you're listening to this on uh, release day. And until then, I am Lee Charles. I'm Spro. And we hope that you are sitting front row when the envelopes are red. Well, that does it for this episode. November 1st, we'll be back with the second part in the three-part Poly Academy series. If we gave an Oscar to Pacino, we would be taking a Pacino Oscar away. And if you know, you know. Best Actor 1993, next time. And if you're new to our little shindig, Spro and Lee episodes, old and fresh, are released every other Monday on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast platform. Please join our Facebook group, follow us on Instagram, or send an email to takeontheacademy at gmail.com with any suggestions, questions, complaints, recipes, or manifestos. We like hearing from you. We'll see you front row when the envelopes are ready.